Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Tuesday's top story. Happy Tuesday, guys. We got some bad news to start off the week. That's just how it goes. According to the BIS, if you bought Bitcoin last night, you probably are down bad, which is a pretty fair assumption. According to this new banking report that came out Monday, the BIS looked at a bunch of different exchanges, a bunch of different people who are buying Bitcoin across different jurisdictions, across different income levels. They found out that most people who are minnows in the sea of Bitcoin and crypto probably sold and sold into losses last year while whales typically were gobbling up and selling these large ports for USD and we're okay. There's a few assumptions in here that we should definitely unpack. We'll get to those in a second, but I do want to get this headline over to Zach just to start because it is an interesting thing to see in terms of like crypto's adoption narrative, right? If we have a bad year and prices go down, people take losses, kind of hurts the ability for people to want to buy in next time. And this number really looks rough. Zach, throw it up to you. Picking on me, I thought this would be a Wendy one. You know, Wendy's out here trading this stuff actively. You know, she's probably not losing, but I mean, sure, this is the BIS. The BIS <laughs> loves making headlines like this. They're out here saying crypto's bad. It's the small guys who are getting hurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. DeFi shady. I know we get it. So I'm having a hard time overcoming the messenger in this one. But I don't know. That's all I got. I'm going to toss this to Wendy. She's probably got more sophisticated trading thoughts on this. I think that we should take the I out of BIS and just leave it as BS in this particular case because (laughs) Bitcoin has outperformed quite a few traditional assets. And I talk about this all the time on my show. I look at my 401k when I had my nine to five, when I was working in healthcare, I was actively contributing. The amount that I had when I left in 2017 is the same that I had, if not lower. And the Bitcoin that I bought in 2017 is up significantly. So I understand their concern. I know they want to FUD our bag so they can continue to buy it at a discounted price. Um, But realistically, yes, we have had a bit of a rough patch, but that also can be attributed to lack of regulations from our public servants and lack of creating any sort of guidelines for people to operate, especially crypto exchanges in the United States of America. But I personally think that Bitcoin is going to be fine And those people who are actively investing and do have a trading or investing plan, they'll be okay too. I don't think there's an ulterior motive at foot. I mean, I think these are just raw markets, right? Like the markets, 
tend toward, I guess, professionalization over time. And maybe that's what we're seeing here, right? Retail investors getting burned. Obviously, someone else in the market is potentially profiting. Maybe that's just the way these markets work. But hey, I don't know. I'm no economist. Or the data that they're presenting is skewed. Sorry, I had to say that. No worries. Sorry, I would just wanted to note that there is one, uh, one more interesting thing about this BIS report that they uh, also underscore that it was the developing countries, that, not the richest countries in the world, that suffered most from the crypto, from the FTX collapse this year. And I think this part is kind of a useful reminder that crypto is a complicated industry, right? It's a complex industry, and at the same time, it's kind of lucrative, you know, the stories that your friends got crypto rich and you still haven't. I think it's a repeating and kind of worrisome stories that the most financially disempowered, maybe, and not the most financially savvy people, they get caught in between cycles and in big crashes like the FTX one. Yeah, I think that's some good points. And just to respond to what Wendy was saying, I think it does depend on like the numbers themselves, right? So BIS looking at this, they basically looked at the market in general. They picked a few different statistics in order to make this whole report. So they included like the number of people who had downloaded a Bitcoin application that allowed them to buy Bitcoin. They looked at exchange volumes during peak periods. And they came up with this rough estimation about, about how much money did an average retail user lose in terms of Bitcoin over 2022? And how much did a whale sell into that market? You know, it's fair to make those assumptions, but it doesn't really give you great data on a granular level. That being said, I think uh, it is important to note that this headline does ring true for many people. A lot of people did lose money last year. They lost their Bitcoin because they didn't know how to hold it. They sold into a down market because they were scared or they swapped into another crypto asset that went down even further because they were unsure what to do with it. And I think that's just like sort of the walk away for me here is we all know that Bitcoin goes up and down. But for people who got into the market a little bit late and got burnt, we might not see them back for quite a while. And that just plays more into like this long cycle theory that Bitcoin comes around every four or five years because it takes a while for people to forget what happened during the last cycle. Wednesday's top story. According to a new legal filing from the Federal Trade Commission, there's an investigation into Voyager Digital and how they marketed their cryptocurrency project. Of course, Voyager Digital declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy over the summer months. That was part of the spew of the fallout from Three Arrows Capital. They later sold their uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy claims to FTX, which then itself went into Chapter 11. And now we have this investigation. Also this morning, we have a new headline that Binance US has been affirmed and is likely to win the final Chapter 11 assets from this whole contagion with Voyager. So we kind of get a resolution there. That being said, this FTC investigation is now open and they're going to look into the directors, the officers, the marketing of the firm that got them into this position in the first place. This really feels like a story for Jen. I got to throw it your way. There's a <laughs> lot of marketing in crypto. There's a lot of marketing out there that Gary Gensler and SEC boys would not love, but it's probably how you went out in this ecosystem. want to get your take on it. Yeah, so this is all about this bankruptcy case, right? What the FTC is saying is that if Voyager is sold, which it looks like it is going to be to Binance US, all of these marketing claims shouldn't go away. And I think I agree with them. I just want to remind our audience. So there is a class action lawsuit in South Florida, and it's against Mark Cuban and the Dallas Mavericks. And the claims are that Voyager falsely marketed the platform as 100% commission-free falsely represented Voyager as insured by the FDIC 
and failed to disclose the nature, scope, and amount of compensation celebrities received in exchange for promotion. I don't think that the executives and the company should not be held liable for those things if it's found that these allegations are true. And I guess my next question is, is if the sale goes through and Binance US does acquire Voyager Digital, do they acquire these lawsuits as well? It seems like the FTC wants them to. And I wonder if that's going to affect the sale. But I think that all marketers in crypto should be looking at this with a magnifying glass and taking a look at your marketing strategy. You should understand how the business works. If you're making claims that there are things like FDIC insurance and it comes out in your copy or in your marketing, you are partially responsible for that messaging. And so I think that marketers need to do a better job understanding all parts of the business. Zach, what do you think? Yeah, you got to really be careful out here. Um, you know, I think the SEC is very attuned to some of these claims, right? Um, there is a lot of suspicion around where yield in crypto comes from, right? And the word interest even, right? I think a lot of people mistakenly call these things interest-bearing accounts. It's different. Maybe it's rewards from staking. Maybe it's some other sort of mechanism by which you're generating yield. But I think the onus is on centralized finance companies such as Voyager to be crystal clear about what is going on on your platform. Because right now, any sort of you know, askance wording around what you're offering and how you're offering it is really drawing the ire of lawyers in the federal government. We saw this big time with the Kraken case, right? The Kraken case, which was about their staking service, that was very much about how it was represented and how it was represented differently than what you would get as an individual would you be staking things directly on a blockchain, right? So I think the language is really important. And especially like right now with regulators just going over this stuff with a fine tooth comb, it's really, really important to be clear about what's going on to make sure that you're not running afoul of securities laws or in this case, other violations. And I think we're going to see you know, potentially more of this because the timing does seem right around some of these enforcement actions. Toss it to Will though. Will, what's up? Yeah, last take here for me. Interesting how there's always like a different agency that's going after these claims, right? So typically to SEC, the Kraken one you just mentioned, Zach, that was a bombshell from about two weeks ago. And that really was about the financialization of stake, right? The saying that I can get some sort of interest-bearing account on top of staking when in reality staking is just staking, right? And the SEC doesn't seem to have too many qualms about that. I think we're still understanding that full story, but they don't seem to have too many issues with the underlying staking. It's the financialization of stake, right? Saying that you have an interest-bearing account here when you are, in fact, just staking a cryptocurrency. And I think that's the thing that's going to be come knocking for all these different companies that were offering interest. And it makes sense from a marketing angle that people were saying that these are interest-bearing accounts, right? Because most people are familiar with that. They open a checking account when they're 12 with their parents and maybe got a little bit of interest. And so nowadays, when you're looking at these different projects and you're opening up an account on Voyager, you're opening an account on FTX, it's marketed as, as interest when in reality, it's not really interest, right? You're basically uh, getting some sort of financialized program from staking or trading or lending, things like that. And there's some comparisons to, to interest for sure, but it's not necessarily the same here. And I think it's a big issue that a lot of marketing people in the space got caught up in. And now they're going to have to pay the penalty. But Jen, we'll go to you for the next story. Yeah, before we go to the next story, I'll give one last thought here. I hope that marketers are looking at this and thinking about how they're disclosing those influencer relationships, those celebrity relationships. And I hope that they're challenging themselves to ask the people who give them the information that they're publishing, you know, if it's true, what are we bagging? I think everyone is responsible for the information that goes out there. So as a marketer myself, it's sometimes hard to get people to answer those questions, but I hope that everyone watching 
just push it a little harder. Um, and if you're not sure, just don't publish. You know, no one's going to die. Thursday's top story. We are talking about your boy, SBF. He's back in the news with 12 indictments or allegations against him. Previously, we only had eight, which, you know, that's not too many. 12 is a little bit higher and things look even worse. There's new indictments here, including a lot of stuff about how he gave political donations to people, did not disclose it correctly. There's also some new counts around wire fraud. All in all, the picture only becomes more bleak. There's some interesting information tidbits within the article you can find on coindesk.com about these indictments, including how they were trying to give money to different groups in Washington, DC, different PACs, how they were choosing to give these uh, donations out, who they were giving the donations through during like FTX or through Alameda. Uh, it's a mess. It really is a mess, but it does shed some light into the actual like political functions within FTX and within Alameda itself. Like This was a fairly political organization. I'm going to throw this one over to Adam first. I want to get your take on it. Pretty interesting new findings this morning. I mean, I think that it's just the continued unraveling of a ball of yarn that we did not appreciate was quite as long as it has turned out to be. Again, like a significant facade was put forward here if the allegations wind up being true, that as time goes on, we're just seeing is more and more and more wrong. <laughs> so like, it's, a, it's not a good story. It's not a good piece of news here, but I think it is a continuation. And to a certain extent, you know, I've said this in a while, my mother used to tell me, if you can't be a shining example, at least be a horrible warning. And I have to think that's kind of where we are in SBF's world right now, is he went from being sort of what everybody aspires to be, to being like the horror story that you really, really, really don't want to find yourself in the shoes of at this moment. So interesting, but uh, not too much else there. Zach? I'll toss it down to Will. Will? I got to fact check myself already. Bad day, bad day. It's not wire fraud in these cases, though he does have wire fraud again. So the new indictments are actually for bank fraud. So similar, related, but different. Zach, back to you. Yeah, I mean, this is just, yeah, this is a crazy story that keeps getting crazier. There's some interesting details in here suggesting some of the inner workings of the FTX organization. Yeah, it's remarkable. It's remarkable to see this, you know, giving money out to political campaigns and causes, seemingly hedging their bets across the board, right? I think SBF established himself as a prominent donor to the Democratic Party, but clearly we're seeing these documents that the Republicans were also targeted, sort of hedging all bets, donating in all places, seemingly strategic, I guess, in the diversity of places in which they were spending their money. Interesting, nonetheless, that we get to see these details come out in court filing such as this. So anyway, I think that ball of yarn, that big ball of yarn that we keep seeing unspooling here really does stick with you. Um, Adam, I saw your hand. I'll toss it to you. So you said strategic. I think I would say cynical. I yeah. think that what we've seen here is that the persona that SPF put forward was sort of, again, a facade, but it was a facade that was intended to work in the most cynical way that you possibly could imagine, right? He signaled all the right things that you're supposed to signal. He, you know, he hated all the people who you're supposed to hate, uh, you know, and kind of just like put himself like into a mold that was exactly what sort of like mainstream reality wants. And then he just filled that archetype. And what we see here is that it was all a facade and that in reality, if the allegations are correct, there was really none of the belief there. <laughs> It was just, hey, this is the most expedient way that I can arrange my, you know, myself and perception of me so that I can maximize my goals. But yeah, it's pretty wild. I think I saw a couple of hands. Zach, you want it back? 
I'll just take it quick, and then I got to toss it to Jen. But I mean, it, I, it recalls that the, the shibboleths, the shibboleths of woke media, the thing that came out with that early story uh, that was revealed through Twitter DMs that he thought he was talking to a reporter off the record, yeah. it was published, etc. Right. And I think there is sort of an emerging consensus from people who are watching this story closely is that SBF didn't believe in anything. Therefore, he yeah. believed in everything. Right. Uh, you know, I guess part of the philosophy was the ends justified the means. Right. He was seeking to raise as much money as possible. Uh, ostensibly or allegedly to do good in the world, right, with that money. And I think whatever got him to the point of most money, as dictated by his understanding of effective, effective altruism, was the right path to pursue. And I think that sort of believing in nothingness, to me, was really exposed in that debate with Eric Voorhees, right, who's sort of a true crypto libertarian. You know, famously, you know, SBF and Voorhees squared up on the Bankless podcast and, you know, batted these ideas back and forth. And it kind of became evident sort of at that time. This was before some of these damning revelations about the Alameda balance sheet. This was before all that. But even sort of that began to open a window onto the fact that maybe this was a bit more nihilistic than previous generations of crypto believers had built. So anyway, lots of good stuff to go here. But Jen, I'm definitely got to get your word on this. Yeah, no, I think you guys all covered it. There was a source quoted in CNBC this morning who's familiar with the new counts that said, that these could add another 40 years to the prison term for SBF if he is convicted of these. It's just crazy to look back over the last two years. You know, I know we keep bringing up that we had SBF on the show to know that all, all of these really allegedly scammy behaviors were going on behind the scenes and nothing that he was saying was effectively true, allegedly. It's just so frightening to see how far he was able to make it in this world. And I think as I read more and more stories about SBF, I wonder about those two people who put up some of that bail money for him, not his parents. I think it was the ex-dean of Stanford and then another ex-Stanford employee. I wonder how their reputation is going to get caught up in this. I don't think we've spoken about it on The Hash before. And if we did, I wasn't here. But uh, Adam, I'll pass it off to you for the next story. Yeah, two things. And then I'll toss it down to you, Will, and then we can move on. So one thing, just to talk about it, the the bail stuff, super weird, continues to be super weird. We've now it's now been revealed that indeed the two individuals of very, you know, of high net worth have actually not pledged anything close to the money that was supposed to actually be the bail amount, not even 10% of that, and they haven't paid anything. So there's like seven hundred thousand dollars worth of pledged funds if he runs, and the four million dollar nominal value of the California property that his parents have pledged. And that's it. So it's like there's there's this there's all kinds of weird stuff going on there. And then just the last thing is that the cynicism I actually agree with in most circumstances that that he has put forward. But it's not the sort of thing that you action on, right? It's the sort of thing that you're aware of because it's a reality of the market, right? Like that infamous comment that he made about how a lot of projects are Ponzi schemes, essentially. That's true. <laughs> a lot of projects are Ponzi schemes, but recognizing that typically means that as a person who recognizes it. You're like, so I'll avoid that and I'll tell other people to avoid it, not, hey, that's a Ponzi scheme. Let me make all my bets on that and double down on it using my reputation. Apologies for going so long. Will, any final thoughts? One final thought here is that we got another Easter egg for how they kept like internal records in the document today so that they have like an internal Excel spreadsheet for keeping track of all these contributions. It's just funny to see a huge organization running on like Google Sheets, you know, like, <laughs> come on, kind of pathetic. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. 
We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, the hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 